Ever since graduating with my MBA over five years ago, I've tried to find easy ways to keep my skills sharp. As I've talked to other insights professionals across the industry, I've recognized that a lot of people have day jobs but are trying to find easy ways, online courses, e-learning to keep their skills up to date. That's why I've started this two-part podcast mini-series on market research education options. In other words, what are the ways that people can get the skills on top of their day job? This first part of the series is with Catherine Korostoff, who's the lead for Research Rockstar, which is one of the leading organizations for skilling up and providing education to market researchers. In this episode, we will cover how qualitative research has changed during the pandemic, why sometimes text-only online focus groups are better than using video, how to present research findings to business teams, and the pros and cons of using part-time online learning like Research Rockstar and other options versus taking full-time graduate degree in research. Later on in February, Catherine will release her video podcast where I share my personal experiences of getting new skills while working full-time, specifically with learning options such as LinkedIn Learning, Coursera, and DataCamp. I hope that these two upcoming episodes will help you understand and get the skills you need to grow your career. This is Digging for Insights, the marketing research podcast for insights professionals and businesses looking to deeply understand their customers so they can grow. I'm Stephen Griffiths, a Fortune 500 corporate researcher. Join me as we talk with experts about inspiring case studies, career advice, and research methods that will lead to growth. Today, I'd like to welcome our guest, Catherine Korostoff. Catherine is the lead instructor and founder of Research Rockstar. She leads a 10 of 10 instructors at Research Rockstar, which has a catalog of over 25 different market research training topics. Catherine is a veteran in the industry. She has 30 plus years of market research experience on both the client and supplier side. And recently, Insights Association named Catherine in their inaugural class of the IPC Laureates program. Catherine, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Stephen. It's a pleasure to be here. What are the main reasons that you find people coming to Research Rockstar or to e-learning in general? Yeah, so I think that at the high level, I, I see two scenarios. There's the people who are coming for us for training for their own individual purposes, and then we also have the team managers. So somebody who's running an insights team or running a market research agency, and they're looking to get uh, training for their team. So we do see both types of customers in the real world. But ultimately, it boils down to, you know, what are they trying to achieve, whether they're trying to do it for themselves or if it's a part of a team advancement sort of effort. Um, and one of the big things, of course, is just sheer career advancement. Um, even great team leaders do everything they can to try to engage their employees. And, you know, investing in your employees is a great way to keep them engaged, of course. If they see that the team manager is really uh, wanting them to advance their career, that usually ends up being a real win-win for both the team manager and the employee. In fact, some of the best insights teams I know are run by managers who are really passionate about developing their team members for their ongoing market research and insights success. So career advancement is definitely one of the uh, one of the key things. Um, we do also see, though, that sometimes it's about people who need to um, fill a specific skill. You know, they've got something that they're trying to accomplish, um, but maybe something has changed. Like maybe in the past they were primarily responsible for secondary research, 
but now they are also responsible for primary research. Those are really different skill sets, and that can be a real upskilling need. There can be a lot of learning that's required. But these days also, I see a lot of cases where somebody, maybe they mostly did survey research in the past, but now they're getting tasked with more qualitative hmm. and, and vice versa. You know, the people who had the rich qualitative skills, now they're being asked to do more quant work. Interesting. So for the most part, and just so I understand in context, as everyone who's listening to this understands, uh, your engagements tend to be with maybe larger teams within organizations as opposed to individuals, or do you find getting both types of clients going to Research Rockstar for training? Definitely get both. Um, so we have some people who come to us as individuals where they are looking to advance their own career or fill a fill a skill gap, um, or um, or perhaps they're just lifelong learners. Right? We talked about this once before. I think you and I, where we're talking about people are just like really passionate about uh, about lifelong learning. Um, but the team managers are are also very much involved. Um, so we actually have some clients that you know do pay out of their own pocket, you know, as individuals, and then we have clients who are our team manager who might be bringing five to 10 people through over like a 12 month period to go through some programs. Gotcha. You know, and I've seen the same thing in my life too, right? So I think sometimes it's like, wow, there's this role that's coming up that I need to get skilled up for, you know, how to get training for that. So it's sort of training and role. Um, I've also talked to friends who, you know, I know one that was a brand manager and said, I want to get into insights. And so I needed some sort of credential to show on the resume and to others that I've got the skills needed to do this job. Um, and then I think your point is exactly right that some people, I'm, I'm one of those lifelong learnings. I love just getting on there and, and learning more things, even if it's not directly applicable to, you know, what I'm immediately doing in my current day job. Yeah. Um, I'm curious, sort of segueing into the next segment here. So there's a lot of different topics out there in marketing research. And which are the topics that you find are most in demand right now with the clients that you're working with? It's, um, it's really fragmented. I wish I could say that there was one thing that was like, you know, the one killer thing, but there's actually a few different things that are going on. Um, first of all, there is Definitely, there are teams out there that are really upskilling on their quantitative skills. Um, and what's interesting to me about that, and, and this might just be my bias as somebody who's been in this business for a really, really long time, but in the, in the old days, um, you know, a lot of, especially on the, on the client side, corporate researchers, people who work at, you know, financial organizations, big CPG brands, et cetera, a lot of times they outsourced the quantitative work. So if there was any statistics work that was being done, if there was SPSS work that was being done, if they were trying to use their survey data to predict, um, you know, what types of customers are going to be, you know, the best target market, you know, for a particular opportunity. Um, a lot of times they would outsource that, but that's really changed. A lot of teams are really been upskilling on their quantitative skills. And to some extent that has that's reflected in who they're hiring and who they've been hiring the last few years, but even with existing team members, you know, really upskilling the amount of, of uh, quant skills out there. And in market research for a long time, the default was SPSS. But of course, these days I see students who want SPSS. I see students want to learn R or Python. Um, we have some teams that use Q now. Um, and so sometimes those teams need, you know, need Q training. Um, so the quant skills can vary quite a bit. Do you find that you're providing resources for each one of those, or do you sort of teach the principles and thinking behind it, and then people can choose the platform they like best? Uh, actually, a little bit of both. SPSS is still so dominant in our profession that we do have SPSS 101 and 201. 
Um, and IBM owns SPSS. Um, and they do have their own training too, but their training isn't specific to market research. So our SPSS instructor is a, mar- is a survey researcher. You know, she's a hardcore survey researcher. She knows how to deal with survey data, right? So we have those two courses that are really geared towards uh, survey data. We have a survey-based case study that the students go through so they can really kind of see, okay, I can see how this would apply to my own work. Um, we actually did have an R class at one point, um, but we just didn't get enough demand for it. Um, and I think that's because there's so many R classes out there. You know, mm-hmm. if you just Google R training, you'll find a hundred free classes on R. Are they specific to market research? No, but you know, close enough for, I guess, a lot of people. Um, so I, I kind of withdrew from that and I don't even want to think about like Python. You know, I think there's so much great Python training out there these days. I, I wouldn't even want to think about doing that one. Makes sense. Okay. So analytics is clearly one of them um, that you're seeing a lot of growth in. Uh, what are some of the other areas that you find people coming to you for? Well, a big change that's happened, unfortunately, with everything that we've been going through um, this past year um, has been an increase in online qualitative. And so while online qualitative research has been around for, gosh, at least 15 years, I've been doing it. Um, it's definitely seen a huge surge since the pandemic. Um, and so what has happened is a lot of organizations that did still do in-person focus groups or mall intercepts or even in-person or in-home in-depth interviews or shop-alongs, good old-fashioned shop-alongs, they all had to go online. And so a lot of organizations now, you know, they've shifted that their whole qualitative methodology. The thing that's really exciting is that while there are certain skills that do transfer really well, I've found that most people realize that online is very different than in person. And so they've been very eager for training on not only how to design online qual events, whether it's a group event or an individual event, but also um, how to actually facilitate you know, how to be an effective moderator when it's online versus in person. I mean, I think that's a great point. Anyone who's working in research has experienced that, right? Where everything is moved online for almost any research that you're doing. I'm curious, are there any sort of teasers? Like what are some of the biggest transitions that people have going from one to another that you can call out? Well, one of the big challenges that I find with people who have experienced moderating in-person focus groups is that even people who are like awesome you know, in-person focus group moderators, when they first go online, they feel like they're just drinking from a fire hose. It just gets so intense. Um, And part of that does vary somewhat based on your format, but with, you know, an online focus group, we just find that people are just, they're participating. And if there's a chat component, and a video component. Now you've got some stuff is coming to you through the chat. Some stuff is coming to you through the webcam. Um, it can be quite over. It can be overwhelming. And by the way, not all online focus groups do have video. There are certain topics where we find that actually the purely chat-based format is actually better. Um, I don't recommend. Yeah, I don't recommend telephone only though. Those I, I, that's a huge topic, but they they don't work so well. Um, but uh, but the video for certain topics is great, but there are certain topics where uh, because of issues of um, social desirability bias or uh, in B2B research, sometimes it's really hard to recruit people to do online focus groups on webcams because they may not 
the participants may feel a little funny, like, you know, if my boss sees this, would I get in trouble? Or what if a competitor or is, you know, is in this group, it's on a topic that I'm an expert on, my competitor could be in the group too, you know what I mean? So sometimes with B2B, we actually find that recruiting for the chat style focus group, I know it sounds so old school by these current standards, but actually works really well. Wow, that's so interesting. I think I love your comment there because so often we think we're trying to do best practice. And I think most people would say, well, you want as much stimuli as possible. Get some video, make sure you got audio, like you can see facial expressions, like how rich that is. But I love your point of depending on the purpose of the research, there could be other ways even <laughs> back to the 1990s, right? Where it's just, you know, text or I am only uh, can, can still provide a lot of value. You. Oh, yeah. And frankly, the platforms that do support those types of groups have some pretty cool features, too. So you can still do visual stimuli, like share, like say if you're ad testing, you can share your ad video or print ad mockups. You just can't see each other. <laughs> <laughs> gotcha. Makes sense. Um, great. So analytics is a big area. Online qual is a big area. Other ones that come to mind? Probably um, the one that I hear the most pain from the team manager side um, and again, team managers from both market research agencies, as well as the insights teams at brands, um, is about report writing for executive audiences. Interesting. I mean, I know that's almost every job description I've ever seen for marketing research talks about report writing, presenting to leadership, right? I guess you're finding that is not as common of a skill as maybe people are asking for. Well, you know, it's it's really a hard one, Stephen. It's something we've been struggling with in this uh, profession for a long time, um, where we all strive, and we've been trying to strive for years to improve the amount of value that gets added to research reports. So I think the the basics of research reporting are also are just alone are are pretty. It's a pretty big topic. It, for for that research rock star, it's a six hour course. It's not an it's plus plus homework assignments. It's not <laughs> it's not a trivial thing to learn really how to write great research reports. But the challenge is getting people and, and the pain that the team managers always tell me about is is really in the executive summary, mm-hmm. getting the researcher to be comfortable enough and skilled enough to really write those insights igniting statements. You know, here's what we found. Here's the business opportunity. Here's the business challenge and getting away from X percent said this or Y percent said that, or, you know what I mean? So really trying to get to that level in the research report can, it it really is very challenging. I could totally see that. Do you have recommendations for like how many slides to share for actual reports or do you focus mainly on sort of the executive summary portion of report writing? Yeah. And our courses on report writing um, and we, cause we actually have somebody who teaches the quantitative report writing course and the qualitative report writing course, because uh. they're different. They have some commonalities, but there are some really important parts of those types of reports that are very, very different. So we actually have it as two separate courses and they each have a section specifically on executive summary. Um, and in both cases, we try to give people a lot of examples, you know, different styles, but the thing, Stephen, that we're really seeing more interested in is uh I added uh, about two years ago, I added the one page executive summary and gave people some examples and some, an actual, and I actually gave a, added a PowerPoint template. And that was what really thrilled some of the team managers. Cause they were like, if I can show them, here's a template that you can literally fill in, then it helps the people who, you know, it's not that they're not capable of doing it, but 
it can be really uncomfortable when you're so deep into the data to then take that leap of, okay, the data points are telling us this about customer attitudes or customer behaviors. Now I have to say, what does that actually mean in terms of business? How's it going to help us? You know, like we always use the phrase, I'm sure you've heard it before. Is this going to be something that helps us to make money or save money? You know, and if we can tie the research results to the actual business impact using those types of little frameworks, it really helps the researcher to be more confident that, ah, yes, I can write these statements. And that is going to help me to get to making it easy for my client, my reader, the business executive to actually take you know, take this data and get some action out of it. Yeah. Oh, that totally makes sense. I mean, the number of times, sometimes it takes time, right? Separation from the analysis to write that executive summary. Cause yeah, you know, a lot of times you're like, there's no way I could explain this in less than, you know, 20 minutes and that can't fit on one slide. Right. And so boiling that down to the key components and making it actionable, I can totally see how that's critical and a very much an in-demand skill. Um, and so, then, Oh, go oh, for it. Sorry, that, that I did, but before we move on, I just wanted to mention a couple other topics. And I know this is a little bit all over the place, but that's just this is just the reality of what of what we're seeing, at least um, in, in my company. And then talking to the other instructors too, you know, about what they are hearing from their from their students. A big topic the last couple of years has actually been about improving um, sort of our skills as methodology planners. Hmm. You know, in the old days, if somebody came to you as a market research professional, they would often think of you as specifically, oh, I need a survey or I need a focus group. I need some in-depth interviews. And if you were really, really lucky, they might have said, I'd love to do some ethnographic research. Right. I mean, right. those totally, <laughs> you know, that was that those were our bread and butter for decades. But, you know, obviously there are a lot more methodologies and data sources available that, uh, that are now part of the toolkit. You know, we're, we are part of a much broader, um, you know, information ecosystem in most organizations. And, um, and organizations have a lot of ways of learning about their customers, you know, not just through market research, right? And so it's been a big topic for us in, you know, helping our, our students to become more of, you know, sort of the, the agnostic, advisor, you know, so if a client comes to me and says, I've got a problem, um, our renewal rates for the service are way down this year, but we know that our key competitors are actually doing really well, we really need to explore this, whatever the objective is, but using that as a, as a simple example. Um, all right, so your renewal rates are really low. There could be a lot of different ways of tackling that, you know, it's not just oh, I'm going to go do a focus group with some of your customers to find out why they're not renewing, or I'm going to do some basic win-loss research. That's not, you know, now these days there could be 10 different ways of tackling that problem. So I want our students to know what all the options are and what the relevant pros and cons are. I don't expect every market researcher to become a hands-on expert in working with third-party data. I don't expect every researcher to become an expert at text analytics, right? But we should all know what those things are and when to recommend them. And that's been a hot topic. Oh, I could totally see that. And yeah, as the sources of data and ways of doing it expand, um, I, I can only see that growing more over time, right? And and per perhaps something that is constantly updated, right? Because as new things become available, that's not like the f five year ago version is necessarily applicable today. 
Yeah, absolutely. And that also, you know, runs into some other related things like, you know, when you are managing research studies that may be using multiple methodologies, multiple data sources um, to really, you know, bring in the most comprehensive answer to whatever the issue is at hand, that also means I have to be a better project manager because it's getting more complex. So project management is somewhat related, you know, if people are going to be designing more complex projects or projects that have more moving parts to them, um, then project management skills really come in play. And also related to that is this idea that it involves us being more consultative and getting comfortable with that, you know, so that if a client does come to you and says, oh, I, I want to do a survey project to, um, to understand customer attitudes about flavor trends, that the researcher is confident enough to say, okay, well, let's explore really what it is you want to learn about flavor trends and what target market you're interested in exploring that in and how you plan to use that data so that they can be more consultative and say, you know what, for that, you actually want to, you know, we, we want to consider some other options here for really getting you what you need instead of it just being a default answer. Oh, totally. And the best researchers out there. So I was talking to an insights director once and that was her take was like all the big projects she's done in her career was almost never because a business partner asked for that research. It's because she <laughs> had to understand the problem, tackle it in a different way, and then was able to deliver something outstanding. So completely agree with you. Changing. Uh, so we've talked about, you know, why we do research, uh, e-learning, I mean, um, what are the popular areas? And you've talked about some of those. And I want to sort of finish up here talking about what are the, some of the options available just at a very high level view. You know, I think there's a bucket of keeping up with skills in just very easy ways, you know, podcast, YouTube channel, I would even argue LinkedIn learning where most learning modules are only an hour or two long are great ways for getting awareness of different topics. I think there's more in depth. So a second bucket could be sort of broad-based e-learning. So I'm thinking about, you know, Coursera, uh, Udemy, um, Skillshare, a lot of those out there that have lots of different courses. That's where a lot of things you talked about earlier are Python training, like lots of options out there. I want to talk about this third bucket of um, options, though, this idea of professional development that's specific to marketing research. And I know that's where Research Rockstar is, along with some other options. Yeah, I, and I really like that distinction you made, too. And I definitely want to be objective here and not be biased towards the, you know, my what what my company does and the services of our you know other professional companies because some of those other sources that you mentioned really do have some good uh, good you know coverage you know there are there there are definitely some really great courses on Coursera for example and you know sometimes for very specific topics of interest those those may fit the fit the need um, but when we talk about training e-learning opportunities that are really developed for market research professionals, right? Those of us who, this is our career. We're in market research and insights. We're in, and, you know, to get us to that kind of quality of e-learning, um, the sort of the organizations, um, in, in addition, of course, to, to mine, Research Rockstar, um, I've got, you know, uh, always heard great things from um, students who have taken courses uh, with the Burke Institute. Um, Burke has been around for a long time. They used to uh, do more in-person training, but obviously things have changed. <laughs> um, <laughs> but they have a great instructors and really great curriculum. In fact, 
eons ago, before I had this business, I ran a market research agency that, um, and I, I sent my, my, my team, I always sent my team to, to Burke classes. Um, in fact, I did my own focus group moderation training at Burke like oh, 20, 20 years ago. Um, <laughs> so, um, I, you know, they have some really good content. And then of course, um, for qualitative research, Reva. Um, so have you ever run into Reva? Yeah. I mean, I'm not super familiar with it. I, I know colleagues that have been trained in it. It sounds like what, two or three days really focused on how to be a, a best in class qualitative researcher. Yeah. They really focus on qual um, and they're, especially their training on moderation skills. Um, they're very well known for their in-person in-depth uh, moderator skills training. Um, so they're kind of really, really well known there. And then, of course, um, my my good friend, uh, Jeffrey Henning, who's one of my favorite market researchers, he is the executive director over at MRII, uh, which, of course, is associated with the University of Georgia. Um, And they also have a number of courses that are, um, you know, really designed for the professional market researcher. Help me understand. So when people are thinking of what kind of learning they want to do, you've got all the way in one end where I'm listening to podcasts or do LinkedIn learning for an hour or two. It sounds like this is the other end in terms of higher cost and higher investment, but you know, higher payout as well. Do you want to talk about roughly what kind of time commitment you're sort of getting into for a lot of these kind of options we're talking about with the Burke Institute or others? Yeah, a lot of times these programs are designed to... Um, be um, obviously a fixed amount of content, but depending on the specific um, company, um, some of us spread things out longer than others. Um, So part of that has to do with this idea that in some cases your e-learning is self-paced. You can move as quickly as you want. You are, maybe you are doing a reading assignment and then a quiz, or maybe you're watching a recorded lecture and then doing a quiz, or, uh, or maybe you have to actually do a written assignment that has to be reviewed by an instructor. Um, so different programs offer different amounts of automation versus personalization. Um, so for example, you know, um, at Research Rockstar, we have some programs that last for four weeks. Um, we have some programs that somebody could could bang out in a day if they needed to. Um, my, I, I don't want to speak too much for the others because I know there's been a lot of changes recently. Um, but my my understanding is like a lot of the other ones are also like you know uh, like a two or three day kind of intensive kind of training thing. Um, now with Burke, now that they're, they've moved online, I don't know if they're spreading things out time-wise, but at Burke, it used to be like, you'd go for like three days, two or three days on site, you know, you'd be at a hotel doing, you know, in a seminar room and it would be, you know, really focused and concentrated for a few days. I don't know if, since they've moved online, if they've spread that out or not. I, one of the things I like sometimes about giving students a little bit more time is for those of us who have programs where students actually do have homework to do, you know, like in our courses, some of our advanced courses, we have case studies um, or they have actual software that they need to perform a task on so that they can demonstrate that they've mastered the skill. We like to give people some time for those types of assignments. Um, And so I might have a course, like some of our courses are like six hours of, of content, but we actually spread it over four weeks so that people have time to do those assignments. 
you know, if you are speaking to a market research professional or an aspiring market research professional, what sort of final words of wisdom or thoughts would you share with them as they think about, you know, their ongoing learning? There is always the option of getting a master's, right? So there are master's programs out there. And for people who may not have a graduate degree yet, um, who are planning on being in this field for a long time, you may want to consider the obviously substantial investment in both time and money of getting a master's degree. But depending on where you work, your employer might offset some of those costs. So I do think that for people who have that luxury, that a master's degree, you know, can certainly be something that that helps. Um, but when we're talking about the specific professional types of training options, I think the most important thing is for people to have kind of like a three-year plan. You know, where do I want to be in the market research and insights field in three years? Because depending on, you know, if you see yourself as more of a generalist, if you see yourself going into more of a consultative role, or if you plan on being a specialist, that's going to really dictate what kinds of learning is going to be best for you. Um, you know, I definitely have students who are, they are very much the specialist. They want, you know, they're looking to be like the expert on their team on all things survey research or on all things qualitative, or maybe they're going to be a specialist in an application. Like I really want to be a specialist in market segmentation or product pricing. And so when you've got people who want to be specialists, then that's going to dictate a certain type of uh, training plan versus the people who want to be more of the consultative, maybe methodology planner kind of person who's probably going to be more of a generalist. You know, if that's your career path, then you're going to make different types of choices. My guest today has been Catherine Korostoff, who's the founder of Research Rockstar. Thank you so much for joining us, Catherine. Thanks, Stephen. It was great chatting with you. And that concludes my interview with Catherine Korostoff. There was a story about someone I knew who was able to use that part-time online learning to really change their career. This was an individual who was working at a company and really wanted to get into data science, the analytics part of marketing research. And so she spoke to her manager and was able to get their buy-in to get additional training. And by taking several month-long courses that were pretty rigorous, but still outside of the normal um, working hours, she was able to get the skills and the certification she needed to ultimately become a data scientist and is currently working as a data scientist at a Fortune 500 company in the consumer insights um, realm. I share that example because a lot of these things we talk about seem a lot of work and maybe overwhelming, but this is January. This is time to set resolutions and think where you want to take your career. And I love that encouragement from Catherine to think about a three-year timeline and where do I want to be in three years and what education options do I need in order to get there. If you're interested in Research Rockstar and want to learn more, you can go to researchrockstar.com. Or you can reach out to Catherine through LinkedIn and other means, and I have that contact information in the show notes of this episode. Simply go to diggingforinsights.com slash 22, since this is episode 22 of the podcast. Until next time, I'm wishing you the best as you dig for insights that will grow your career and your business.